The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Have you heard what is being proposed? Gaius Metellus Livius has asked that we, the Roman Senate, should give these barbarians, these savages, Roman citizenship and settle them on Roman land. <laughs> to treat these wandering murderers as brothers, equals. And what of our other provinces? What of Gaul, so loyal to us? What of Syria and Egypt, which sends us our grave? If we make Romans of these barbarians, can we withhold Roman citizenship from them? No. no. Then what becomes of the precious prize Roman citizenship once was? It becomes a cheap, common thing to be given away like bread. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, March 17, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5130. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. They say that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And I think we're witnessing the fall of the Roman Empire, as we just heard in that clip from the movie of the same name. We are witnessing today, especially in Europe, the fall of the new Rome. And with us in the studio to discuss this fall on Just Right for the third time is Lars Hedegaard. Welcome, Lars. Thank you. Welcome. Nice to have you with us. Now, Lars is a historian and journalist from Denmark whose career has brought him into confrontation with Islamic terrorists in Europe and the left-wing courts of his country who give de facto support to Islamic terrorism and the destruction of Western values. Lars was convicted of so-called hate speech in 2011, but that decision was overturned by a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court of Denmark on appeal. And in 2013, an Islamic terrorist made an attempt on Lars' life, which was, happily for us, unsuccessful. Now, I wonder if you can talk, Lars, a bit about, just for our listeners, give a recap of the assassination attempt and um, the the status so far. But before we do that, I just want to remind our listeners that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and hear us on WBCQ 5.130 megahertz. You can find all those links at justrightmedia.org. So back to the story. Lars, what's your story about this assassination attempt up to this morning, where I understand some a new development? Well, it happened on the 5th of February 2013. Um, I was uh, packing up my stuff and preparing to go to our office in Malmo, Sweden, which we had at the time. Uh, somebody called or somebody buzzed my, my door I looked out of the window and saw a, a man in a, a post postal service red jacket. Uh, he said he had a package for me. And I went down, opened the door. He handed me a package that turned out to be empty, as the police found out later. 
As I was holding the, the package, uh, he pulled out a gun and shot at my head. Um, and he missed. Um, the bullet went right past my right ear. And that was a good thing because I had an accident as a child and I'm deaf on my right ear, so it didn't really uh, faze me that much. So but the bullet went, actually hit you? It struck you? The bullet? No. Oh, okay. Uh, it was this close. Okay. And or yeah, less. or less than that. Uh, of course, the police found out that I was very close to have been to have been killed. Um, then I realized that uh, what was going on, of course, and I, I engaged in a fistfight with the guy who's, uh, as far as I know, pa Palestinian extraction. And um, he was uh, 28 and in fine shape, and I was uh, 70 and in worse shape. But I managed to, to hit him, and uh, he lost the gun, uh, tried to recover it, and we fought some more, and eventually he gave up, uh, took the gun, and ran off. And as far as I can tell, uh, he left the country that same day, uh, Denmark for, for Turkey, probably, uh, and uh, the police and I are quite convinced that it, it was part of a plot. It was a planned it had been planned uh, weeks before, and so he had helpers that uh, got him out of the out of the country. Um, he was then uh, jailed in absentia by the court in, uh, I think, the first of April, two thousand fourteen, when he was arrested in Istanbul. Uh, where he was traveling on a fake Syrian passport. And actually his parents, who live in Denmark, came at him down to see him and were obviously followed by, by Danish police. And they got him arrested and he was then jailed in uh, Istanbul for a few months. And the police um, in Denmark assured me it would be a matter of time before he would be extradited to stand trial in Denmark. That did not happen because um, around the 1st of September that year, he was mysteriously let out of prison and in all probability uh, exchanged by the Turkish government for some Turkish diplomats that had been captured in Mosul by Islamic State. So this person who was taking a shot at you must be somebody important to them. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. I mean, he must be uh, what we call a high-value asset. Otherwise, the Islamic State would not care about him. But he's valuable to them. And I also understand now that he had a friend in uh, high school, uh, also a Muslim, uh, who was uh, killed just a few weeks ago by the Americans in Syria. Uh, so, and he was high up this guy that was, uh, that was killed, uh, he was believed to be in charge of Islamic State's foreign operations. Um, I don't know exactly what my would-be assassin, uh, what his position is, but he must be important. It sounds as if he may be a little more important to ISIS than you were to the Danish government. <laughs> One could say that, yes. <laughs> but also, it's obvious that uh, 
as important as they are to themselves, they must regard you as something important. You know, Lars Hedegaard is worth worthy of a, of being a target. What is it that you know? A lot of our listeners might not know what it is that they might have directly against you, as opposed to someone else. <laughs> well, they have lots of things against many people, but uh, I think that. Uh, the reason they hate me and want me bumped off is that I've been an outspoken critic of uh, Islam primarily for 15 years and still am and um, have gained a certain influence uh, in Denmark and abroad. And so if they can silence me, that would be a signal to others. Don't go down that route because you will be next in line. I can only speculate, but um, I have never threatened anyone uh, with murder or mayhem or, or anything. I've just been a, say, an, an intellectual critic of uh, uh, Islam and also recently of mass immigration. Now, we're broadcasting this show on March 17th. However, our listeners should know that we're actually recording this interview on March 10th, Thursday, March 10th. And I mentioned that. Because just this morning on March 10th, you received a phone call from the Danish police. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I got a call at 6 o'clock uh, Canadian time this morning from the Copenhagen police who wanted to inform me that they had uh, perused uh, the computer belonging to uh, an assassin called Omar El Hussein. He was the one who shot two people dead in Copenhagen on uh, February the 14th of uh, 2015, it must have been, yes. Um, And um, they found out that this guy who was uh, shot, as I told you, by the police later on that night, uh, Omar El Hussein, he had been monitoring my Facebook (coughs) for two weeks. Uh, leading up to the 13th of February, the day before, he went out and, and killed uh, two people, a filmmaker and a, and a uh, voluntary guard in front of the synagogue. So I can only speculate that perhaps uh, he would also have liked to, to hit me. So that's the, that's the supposition there, but it seems that you're, you're continuing to be in the target um, of ISIS. I would assume so, yes. And um, does that give you um, cause for concern personally? I mean, how do you live your life personally? Like uh, we interviewed Lars Vilks uh, a few years ago, and the uh, the artist who was, uh, again, in a foil assassination attempt, and uh, he's living in hiding, mm-hmm. in, in seclusion. Yeah. Um, how does this these events affect you personally? Well, you have to understand that for two years uh, after the attempt on my life, uh, I was without any police protection. So basically anyone who uh, wanted to, to shoot me in the street or knife me or whatever could do that. But the very same day that Omar El Hussein uh, committed his atrocities in Copenhagen, I got a call from the secret police of Denmark that they would now put me under 24-7 protection. Um, that's an amazing I'm, commitment for a government to do, I find, just on its own, that, that it would go to such a, a length to offer you that kind of protection. Did, did, I, I can't think of too many Canadians that would be offered that, would they? It wasn't an offer. It was, well, a, it was mean, an order. It uh, was an order. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's interesting. And I, um, 
I had moved to a secure location uh, outside of our capital, the city of Copenhagen. I don't want to tell you where it is, but uh, my house is uh, fitted like uh, Fort Knox with uh, panic rooms and alarm systems and surveillance in and out. And uh, the police comes around ever so often. Every time I have to walk to the supermarket, I have to call a special number and two agents turn up one in front, one in back, so I'm, not, I'm never alone. Do you blame the one particular individual who was um, attempting to take your life? Do you blame political Islamists? Do you blame your Danish government for not doing enough? Both. I don't think that our government should have allowed these, uh, these people to, to enter the country, and, and uh, they should have kicked them out a long time ago. They should have... Uh, spied on their mosques because I, I, I know for a fact that my would-be assassin attended one of these mosques. And by the way, all mosques in Denmark are, are radical. There is not a, I mean, this fiction about modern Islam does not, does not exist, at least as far as the, the mosques are concerned. Yeah, they should have picked it up. And um, uh, of course, the, uh, the guys who pulled the strings here are not to be found in Denmark. They are to be found somewhere in the Middle East. It could be Islamic State. It could be the Muslim Brotherhood. It could be Al-Qaeda or any other number of uh, terrorist outfits. Um, I asked, of course, the police um, if they thought that he was uh, a lone wolf who had uh, thought of this uh, all by himself, and they said, no way. You have to look further out in, in the world. So I'm on an international hit list. We're going to take a break, and we're going to hear a bit of a clip from a discussion of the same theme that took place perhaps over 1,500 years ago. It's amazing how in Rome. history repeats itself. <laughs> the Senate of Rome debating the very issues we're talking about today. When we come back on the other side, we're going to be asking our guest Lars Vilks, I'm sorry, <laughs> Lars Hedegaard, uh, we're going to be asking Lars about um, free speech in Denmark and the fall of Europe. We'll be back after this. Fellow Romans, I am a teacher. And as a teacher, I know that when I've tried to teach the same lesson for a hundred times and still the pupil does not understand, then I'm forced to the conclusion that um, perhaps there's something wrong, either with the lesson or with the teacher. A hundred times we have taught those we call barbarians what it means to make war on Rome. We've burned their villages, we've crucified their leaders, we have enslaved their young. Fires go out, the dead are buried, the slaves die slowly. But the hatred that we leave behind us never dies. Hatred means wars. Wars mean tribute torn from our provinces, taxes, hunger, disease. How costly that is. How wasteful. And yet the answer is simple. We must have no war. No war? 
when your friends continually attack us. This is treason. These people have proved their aims very clearly to destroy us and to destroy the whole Roman way of life. Yet, the answer is simple. Let us transform my friends from men of war to men of peace. Let us put them on our abandoned farmland. Not only will they produce food for themselves, but this I pledge you, one day they will send food to Rome. Yes, I agree. Put them on those lands. Let them produce for us, but as slaves. That is the way it has always been. Niger here used to have 20,000 slaves on his family estate. Where are they now? All sold or freed. Why? Because Niger is opposed to slavery? Huh? <laughs> no, because it's no longer profitable to keep slaves. Slaves do not produce as much as free men. Let us do what is profitable and right. Let us share the greatest gift of all. Let us give these men the right of Roman freedom. Then they will spread the word that Rome has accepted them as equals. Then will we have our human frontiers, the Roman peace that Marcus Aurelius promised. So as we know, Rome let in the barbarians and the vandals, and they eventually fell shortly thereafter. So... After recovering for you know, over a thousand years, recovering some sort of freedom in Europe, we're faced once again with that same dilemma. You know, how can you be a free country and say you're a free country and then deny entry to people who oppose your views? Now, given the polling research, specifically from the Pew Research, which shows that a large majority of Muslims from Syria and Iraq hold views contrary to a free, liberal democracy, should such countries, Lars, as Denmark or Canada or the United States, limit immigration to non-Muslims, the, the so-called, what we might call today, barbarians? Yes, you might. And if you compare our situation today with that of the fall of Rome, I think you have to remember that uh, the uh, barbaric tribe that really brought Rome down was the Goths. Um, and by the way, they were Christian by the time that they uh, invaded Rome and even uh, sacked uh, the city of Rome, um, which means that fundamentally um, they could be persuaded to become part of some sort of Roman uh, empire or Roman state, which they did eventually. But what is happening today is is far worse and cannot be compared to that because we are talking about not only barbarians, but barbarians who, who believe in a uh, political ideology that commands them to take over and oppress the rest of us. They can never, they can never become part of our societies. It hasn't happened for 1,400 years. Whenever you see uh, an influx or an invasion of uh, vast numbers of Muslims, you will automatically have a struggle for territorial control. And this is what we are seeing today. I just uh, 
a couple of days, saw um, a poll in Denmark where 77 point something percent of Muslims in Denmark believe that Sharia law should supplant our man-made laws. In other words, they are not loyal to our institutions and our way of life. And how could you possibly integrate people who refuse to become integrated because they would be killed if they did? It's a small minority of Muslims that are willing and who dare to become part of, of us, which would be possible. I mean, it's always been possible in countries like Denmark to to immigrate and uh, you conform to, to our ways of life and you become loyal citizens regardless of where you were born. Are national borders, sovereignty, um, are they a thing of the past in Europe? Uh, largely, yes, but I mean, they could be recreated, reconstituted, they could. Oh, with a stroke if, of a pen. Oh, yeah, if, if uh, our government uh, closed the borders, they could close the borders. Uh, who, who, would, uh, who could prevent us from doing that? Uh, but they cheat, and they lie. The present government came into power last year on a program promising zero immigration from the third world. Absolutely stop this because we've been unable to integrate those who came before. And they, they constitute a drag on the economy. The welfare state is, on, uh, is nearing its breaking point. We've seen cuts in various social services, etc. They have done exactly the opposite. The um, third world and primarily Muslim immigration is at an all-time high. The Danish government expects 100,000 uh, to be coming over uh, the next year or so, which means that we are not talking about 100,000. We are talking about three, 400,000 when you have family reunification. You, you're saying that Denmark is letting in that many in still to come in one year, coming up still? That's what it looks like. And here we are in Canada panicking about 20,000 coming into a country this size. That's well, I'm a not remarkable sure, I'm not, number. <coughs> I'm not sure that, that he, the, the prime minister meant that they would come uh, in... Uh, over one year, but I mean, he's, he's clearly thinking about an extra mass influx of uh, people from areas where we cannot, uh, whose population we cannot integrate. Now, what, Lars, would you say are the defining characteristics of the West, in air quotes here, uh, which distinguishes it from uh, Muslim-dominated countries like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Iran? Um, Middle Eastern Muslim-dominated countries. What is it about the West that is so precious that we want to keep it and uh, keep these Sharia-loving Muslims out? Well, first of all, we in, in Western Europe, uh, we have countries. We have sovereign countries. Uh, with very few exceptions, you cannot even talk about countries in, in, uh, in the Muslim world. Um, oh, right, you could talk about Egypt, uh, but that's also under attack. Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, and other places are not really countries. These are just areas. They're lines on a map, aren't they, after the Balfour Declaration? Yeah, they're they're lines on the map uh, drawn by some uh, Western imperialists. Uh, uh, They don't signify anything. They don't signify national loyalty towards Iraq, for example. But what what, um, 
Is that a universal principle that they don't, recog don't recognize national borders or just that they would prefer a different border? It, well, uh, no borders. I no mean, borders. If you are a, uh, uh, a true believer, uh, an orthodox uh, Muslim, you believe in, in one worldwide caliphate. And uh, anyone setting up a so-called nation state uh, is wrong and has has committed uh, violations against uh, the commands of Allah and uh, his prophet. It's a far more fundamental conflict than I've ever heard discussed in, the, in this whole discussion. But uh, I hear other people like Salim, for example, uh, Salim Ansar, talk about the fact that you just can't group all Muslims in together. Where The, the real problem is with Middle Eastern Muslims, spe specifically uh, Wahhabists. Um, Salafists, things of, of, of that kind of a sect, because we don't talk about and we don't necessarily fear Muslims coming from Indonesia, the largest um, Muslim country in the world. We don't necessarily talk about Muslims coming from the, the United States. Or India. Or, and there are millions of Muslims in the United States. We don't identify them specifically as being Sharia-loving, and statistically, they aren't. I mean, there, there are certainly a large portion of them mm -hmm. who are. I mean, something of, in the order of 19, 20% of American Muslims, I believe in Sharia law, uh, versus the 99.9% .9 of Afghani Muslims who believe in Sharia law. So we, are, we want to try to focus on, the, I think it's our nature, especially after like World War II, where we had nation state against nation state. We had people in one uniform against a person in another uniform. We had a leader of one country versus a leader of another. Now we have this amorphous enemy and we risk offending, if you want to use that left-wing term, or misidentifying the enemy if we say that a Muslim in Tennessee is the same as a Muslim from Syria, when in fact that may not be the case. Uh, comments, Lars? I would never say that. I would never say that uh, Muslims are all the same. I don't know all Muslims. Uh, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> I'm sure they're very, very different people. But what you have to focus on here is... Uh, you mentioned 19, 20% who want to uh, introduce a Sharia law. Well, that's all it takes. Because by means of violence and threats, um, they are able to and have been able to intimidate the rest of Muslims to at least uh, keep silent. If we had uh, vast numbers of, say, Muslims in, in Denmark, uh, who are opposed to uh, Sharia law, you would expect them to go out in the street and demonstrate with, with signs saying, not in my name. This is not the kind of Islam that I believe in. You don't see that. They keep absolutely mum. Um, and uh, whenever somebody uh, pretends to, to talk uh, for the uh, Muslim Muslim in, in Denmark, it's always uh, some long-bearded uh, barbaric imam who can say anything he wants including uh, recently there was a where a couple of imams who came out and said they are in favor of stoning uh, women who have sex outside of uh, wedlock so the politicians pretended to be surprised i mean why would they be surprised this is what they've been saying uh, for more than a thousand years so so where's the surprise well, we believe in free speech in our liberal democracies. Well, These people whose views that we oppose, because we hold different values, don't they have the right to say that, well, I believe this, I believe this conservative Islamic value of punishing women who are inferior to men. Yeah. Can't they say that? 
Uh, I'm not quite sure they can, because uh, in our Danish constitution, we have uh, Article 67, which is very interesting. It basically says that people are permitted to gather in groups to serve God the way they want to serve God. But nothing should be preached or undertaken in contravention of morals and um, public safety. So when can we expect this particular imam of which you just spoke to appear before a judge? Well, you probably can't. Why not? Because you're appearing before judges. You were found guilty of... uh, uh, originally, originally. Of, of, of originally of hate speech. Of hate speech. Um, yeah, but I mean, uh, w- w- what they what they usually do, they they uh, uh, preach murder and mayhem uh, to their flock, and when they are caught, they were caught on secret uh, camera and uh, exposed all over um, uh, TV. So the next day, a journalist calls them and he said, "Well, I didn't really mean that." Uh, and in any event, this is not something we want to do in Denmark. We'll do it in Egypt or Syria or some other place. And they'll say, okay, no problem. They are never dragged into court for, for, for anything they preach. If they preach uh, female circumcision, um, if they preach four wives, which of course is forbidden in Denmark, um, if they preach, as they have also done, that men have the right and the obligation to beat women, uh, all they have to say, well, um, nah, I didn't mean that. So they go on. Nothing happens. <laughs> Robert and I just looked at each other like, that's amazing, you know. It's like, well, how do you handle this? I mean, we're obviously at fault here. We are to blame the West. And by, by that, I mean the West. Yeah. We are to blame. I don't necessarily blame um, Middle Eastern Islamists so much as I blame the uh, the abettors and the aiders and the facilitators in the West who aren't Muslim, who bend over backwards to make sure that we don't offend people. That's right. I mean, if you, yeah. if, if you let a shark into the swimming pool, it yeah. will eat the kids. It's not the fault of the shark. It's the fault of those who will let the shark in. I mean, that would be my, my take on that. Now, it has been suggested on this show before that the solution to the problem, even though I think that the um, the horse has fled the barn already, would be to isolate uh, Middle East, isolate the Middle East, contain them, I think was the words used on the show here. Um, and I think that's a proper solution. In other words, we identify that Middle Eastern Muslims, um, I it's should a say, temporary that, Middle Eastern <laughs> Islamists are a problem, and they're such a problem that they have to solve the, the problem themselves. We can't impose a solution on people who do not want to debate. We have to let them have that debate, and in the meantime, keep them where they are. Mm-hmm. End immigration of uh, these kinds of Muslims. But it's already, it's already too late. Yeah. The police uh, in, in Europe now estimates that, uh, estimate that uh, between three and 5,000 Islamic State warriors <coughs> have already gained access to to European countries and are now embedded all over. Keep that thought. When we come back from the break, we're going to be talking about the upcoming civil war. We'll be back right after this. Caesar has asked me, when has Rome ever been greater or stronger? I say in answer to Caesar, never has Rome been greater or stronger than now. And what is it? that has kept our empire together, our strength, our might. 
equality, freedom, peace. Who is it that uses these words but Greeks and Jews and slaves? Behind him and his people are the Vandals, untold millions of them, waiting for a moment of weakness, ready to destroy us. If we take these barbarians in amongst us, our enemies will say it is because we are weak. Then they will pour in on us from everywhere. It will be the end of the Roman Empire. It will be the end of Rome. of Rome? How does an empire die? Does it collapse in one terrible moment? No. No. But there comes a time when its people no longer believe in it. Then, then does an empire begin to die. There are millions like them waiting at our gates. If we do not open these gates, they will break them down and destroy us. But instead, let us grow ever bigger, ever greater. Let us take them among us. Let the heart of the empire grow with us. Honorable fathers, we have changed the world. Can we not change ourselves? You're listening to Just Right on WBCQ 5.130 megahertz, where we're in studio with Lars Hedegaard, who joins us all the way from Denmark here in London, Ontario. Interesting, that last sentence that we just heard from the fall of the Roman Empire, let us transform our friends from men of war to men of peace. Um, it's almost a contradiction to what he said before when he said we should be transforming them. And all of a sudden he's talking about we should transform ourselves. And so you have this contradiction when you have two conflicting cultures coming up against each other. Can they coexist? And that's kind of the situation we're faced with today. Obviously Rome did not survive that. Um, do you see the same scenario or even worse happening today? We're in a democracy, which Rome was not. And so when people influx into a democracy, they get a vote too. And they can change, change things without even having to go to, quote, war. Yeah, but what you have to uh, realize, uh, if, you, if you have an understanding of uh, what uh, Islam is about, uh, then you come to the conclusion that there is no amount of change uh, uh, we could, we could uh, make that would make... Uh, the Muslim um, ideologists uh, happy. The very fact that we even have uh, secular states is an offense to Islam because the entire world belongs to Allah, which means that if you have a country called Denmark with borders from the Islamic perspective, that is an illegally occupied area and it's their duty to subjugate us and enslave uh, those who do not want to convert, or rather revert, as they call it, because all men are also born as Muslims. And if they're not Muslims, that's because they are deserters. So you revert to to Islam. And those who don't want to revert, 
get a status called dimi, which means that you have a right or some right to live if you submit to uh, Islamic laws, the Sharia. So this is this is a far worse situation than than uh, that of of uh, Rome. Do you see a civil war happening in Europe today? I'm tempted to say that this is what I. I don't hope this will happen, but if you have two outcomes, uh, one being total submission uh, and the eradication of our culture and uh, all the ideals that we usually stood for, if the alternative is that uh, remnants of uh, the national populations uh, try to defend themselves against uh, complete annihilation, I would, uh, I would prefer the latter. Uh, it won't be pretty. But this is not something that we have ordered or we have asked for. The Danes have never been asked, for example, would you, do you want to have an influx of half a million Muslims? Never. They have been lied to. <coughs> they have been told by, by uh, the so-called experts and, and the politicians that there's no problem. Give a few years and they'll be just like you. Okay, so they have different names and they... We call God God, and they call him Allah, so what's the big difference? It's, Islam is basically a religion like uh, Christianity, which that, it is not. That actually sort of is at the crux of the issue, I think, is that the, the liberals, and I use that term loosely, the left. Use it liberally. <laughs> yeah, um, in the West, believe in their heart of hearts, I think, that they are doing good by letting in refugees from a war-torn country, as if we are back in 1945 when we're letting in the Jews from Nazi Germany, um, out of compassion for our fellow humanity, when they don't realize that amongst these refugees, and I would be the first to admit that there certainly are legitimate people running away from a war torn country and only want to live in peace with their family and even raise them as Muslims, that's fine. Like I said on the show before, if, if Islam was simply a religion, nobody would care. But it isn't. It is a political ideology as well as a religion. But the left don't identify or refuse to identify the fifth columnists in this horde, which number in the thousands. What is it about this willing blindness, blindness of the left which prevents them from seeing what you and I quite, zeely, uh, quite clearly see? That is the, uh, the most difficult question you can ask. Um, I, was, I was thinking about that myself, being, and I don't know how uh, you'd answer it. <laughs> it's being discussed uh, by many people in Europe, not only in Denmark, but in other places. What impels them to act this way? But I mean, first of all, I think you have to understand that the elites, usually left-wing elites, they don't live where Muslims live. They live in so-called lily-white areas um, where they hardly ever see a Muslim. Their kids go to private schools. The roads are uh, pretty much uh, safe. So it's something for the underdogs to, to contend with. One explanation might be that, of course, the, um, until around 1970-something, uh, the left hoped that they could entice the working class to 
<coughs> institute a socialist revolution. So, which would land them on top, right? These would be the thinkers and the uh, leaders of society. The working class defected um, and t- turned right. The working class, basically in Denmark, does not vote for left-wing parties. They vote for centre-right parties. So they had to sort of import a new proletariat who could be guaranteed never to become integrated as the working class had become. And I think that's a vast uh, part of it, but it's not the only explanation. Now, part of this, uh, the backstory of this, is that I understand that you yourself um, come from the left. Yeah. Um, you were a member of the, was it the Socialist Labour Party or something like that? Uh, <coughs> yes, I was for a while. I was a Trotskyist. Trotskyist. Yes. Okay. Um, what has happened to change your views, or even have they changed from the left? Would you call yourself left today? I tend to think that left and right makes uh, make no sense uh, any longer. I would uh, f- I would uh, describe myself as a realist, not uh, a pragmatist. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. A say realist. That. A okay. Realist. To distinguish the two. Okay. Yeah. Somebody who distinguish. Somebody who uh, studies uh, trends and facts and tries to draw conclusions. Um, but you could say that basically when it comes to questions of free speech, uh, liberty, equality between the sexes, uh, rights of uh, homosexuals and, and, and uh, whatnot, secular society as opposed to uh, theocratic societies, I have, uh, I have kept the faith. What I don't do anymore, I don't believe in revolution, uh, the violent or nonviolent overthrow of, of the state uh, and the constitution, and I do not believe in socialism any longer because it's failed everywhere it has uh, been tried. I will say, though, that I still use parts of uh, my Marxist education as an analytical tool, a way to analyze uh, society. But, I mean, I'd rather not talk about it because nobody can understand what the hell (laughs) I mean by that. It sounds we're of of like mind then, which is really ironic because over in Europe especially and amongst your colleagues, journalist colleagues, you would be called extreme right-wing, because you are for one simple idea, and that is you want to limit immigration. And I want to criticize uh, Islam, as I would criticize Nazism, fascism, and Stalinism. Well, isn't that odd? Because here you are saying that you are pro-equality amongst women, amongst homosexuals, amongst the the poor, or... Uh, you're not an egalitarian, but you are for the same rights. For I'm for the all. I'm for the welfare state. Yeah, but but you are for like um, what, how should I say this? You are for um, equality before and under the law for yes. all people. Yes. Um, very liberal and, ideology. Uh, and I have uh, absolutely nothing against people of say color mm-hmm. coming to the country. I don't I don't care. But because you if identi- they want if they want to become part of us. They can become part of us. Well, of course. Yeah. Uh, and I think we are in agreement. But because you simply criticize a religion or a at least a ideology. political aspect of a religion. Let's put it right. If Islam is a political ideology mm-hmm. masquerading as a religion. Okay. Because you're critical of that and because you want to limit immigration, you are now labeled extreme right wing. Not by all. It's been sort of letting up uh, lately. Yes. I mean, more and more, even even hardcore journalists are now sort of softening their stance on me. I'm now only called, mostly called, 
controversial, which is far better than hardline uh, right wing. If we have to deal with any labels, I'd, I'd always want to be called controversial. I think. Yes, but can you imagine? Left. Can you imagine the opposite? The non-controversial writer. Uh, well, there you go. Yeah, that yeah. Would be that, boring. Right? <laughs> now, before we go, though. Um, I want to make sure that we cover one aspect of your life and career that has just recently come to uh, at least one some sort of conclusion, and that is you've just been been controversial again, and you've just been convicted. That's can right. You, can you tell us of your latest conviction, Lars Hedegaard? It's my only conviction so far. Oh, well, yes, yes uh, that's not been overturned on appeal. <laughs> that's right. Uh, it may be overturned. I, I do tend not to believe that. So you're uh, still in mid-process of this, is that correct? Or We are between uh, uh, trials now. Okay. So I'm still awaiting the response of the Superior Court. We have two of those in Denmark, the Eastern Superior Court, uh, when they want to, to run this uh, trial. Let's back up a bit. And, and why don't you but, tell you know, us what, what, what happened was that um, my would-be assassin, BH, um, was, as I told you, released from Turkish uh, jail. And uh, this meant that, of course, nobody knew who he was. The police didn't know. The Danish government uh, protested to the Turkish government and demanded an explanation. What has happened? Where is he? They couldn't get one. (coughs) The Turks simply said, no, we're not going to tell you anything. So I waited a month and a half and then decided I will, despite a gag order, I will mention his name for my own, for my self-protection. I mean, the guy could come back any time to, for example, there were no border controls at the time. He could come back to Sweden, drive across the bridge to, to Denmark, and, and start uh, uh, pursuing me again. So for your own self-protection, you thought that if the world knew the name and identity yes. of this suspect, it would help prevent him from, being, um, from coming back and killing you, yes. finishing uh, the job. He could be recognized. We even had his, uh, his picture. Now, what was the rationale for the court to put a gag order on the publication of his name? Nobody knows because it was uh, a secret trial um, with only the, uh, the judge and the, the prosecutor and the defender of this uh, BH president. He, he nobody, a, he's nobody an adult. What? He is an adult, because here in Canada, we often put gag orders on the publication of names of minors. Oh, yeah, he was, a, at the time of the assassination attempt, he was a 28. 28? 28. Yes. So here we have an adult accused with yeah, a fun, heinous crime. And the fun thing is that, that uh, I can understand that uh, if you are uh, a suspect in police custody awaiting trial, I can understand there would be a gag order on mentioning your name in order not to jeopardize your... Uh, uh, possibility of getting a fair trial. I can understand that. Mm-hmm. But a man who's been a fugitive from Danish justice for three years, um, why? how could there be a gag order against him? If he is innocent, as his uh, defense lawyer, who's a communist, by the way, um, claims, he's had three years to come back to Denmark or go to some Danish embassy abroad and say, okay, I want to be cleared. I want, my, I want to stand trial so I can prove my innocence. He's done exactly the opposite. So, but still there's a gag order, and still uh, I'm now being turned into a victim, and he's being turned into uh, the golden boy. So you were convicted on the charge of releasing or publicizing his name? Yes, I was. And when was that? That was on March 4 this year. 
Oh, so just last week. Yes. Oh, from the recording of this episode, so just yeah. last week. And your intent in the future regarding that uh, conviction? Well, I, I'll, uh, I have appealed to the Superior Court. Uh, I have decided, though, I won't mention the name again because it'll I'll just they'll drag me into court. I could sit there, you know, twice a month and, and uh, pay through my nose. Uh, they could completely ruin me, and there's, I don't see any point in that. Do you think that that may be actually part of why these things are going on, why you were brought before a tribunal for your hate speech, so-called, why you are given gag orders that uh, obviously that go against what you think would be the defense of your life? Do you think maybe it is to bankrupt you and to stop you from speaking? I'd hate to say that. Um, I think it's a... Uh, it's With a, respect to the judge, obviously. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's a broader picture. It's more like... Uh, We're talking about the prosecution, not the judge. Yeah, the prosecution. And, and of course, uh, when you have a political trial, as my trials have been politically motivated, I believe, then the final decision is taken by the Ministry of Justice. So he orders, in these cases, he orders the, the trial to go ahead and so I think it probably has to do with the fact that there's a certain uh, layer of, of uh, our government, uh, an elite, a power behind the powers, uh, who want to demonstrate that they still have this power. They can, they, can, they can punish me, they can silence me, and by the way, 10 other people are now in line to be convicted of uh, breaking the, the gag order. I understand that. Including, uh, including my publisher. I understand that... Um during your trial for releasing the name, that there were people out there protesting with the name of the suspect on yeah. T-shirts. They were arrested? They were arrested. Yes, arrested, yeah. But, I mean, I put out a book uh, four months ago uh, by a commercial uh, publisher where I mentioned the name, and now the publisher is being dragged into court. Oh, my goodness. Well, on that serious note, let's take a quick break for a smile, and when we return, we'll wrap up our conversation with some final thoughts. <laughs> I love this crowd, man. I've been traveling around America, man, and I've been noticing one thing. America's getting more and more culturally diverse every day, man. We turn into a big-ass bag of Skittles, you know? <laughs> right? It's beautiful, man. We trying to party together. We trying. You trying to get along. We good people. That's why I hate when the president says the world hates us. Every time I see him on TV, the world hates us and our freedom. I'm like, us? It's you. <laughs> they burning over there that's your picture they mess with me to get to you first of all i want you all to know that the provisional government has taken the screen's request for immigration very seriously i was sent here to tell you that the ministers, in accord with the Vedic Assembly, have decided to deny the screen's request. I am sorry. Bajor simply cannot absorb three million refugees at this time. We are willing to take that risk. I'm afraid we aren't. We ran a series of projections to see whether a screen settlement could survive on the Northwest Peninsula. The results were not encouraging. 
No. Projections can be wrong. But what if they're not? What is Bajor to do if your people start dying? I thought I made that clear. We are not expecting your help. Do you really think we could stand by and do nothing? We would feel obligated to help. With food, with clothing, with whatever it would take. And where would that aid come from? Our resources are already depleted. To help you would mean depriving our own people. I am afraid the decision of the provisional government is final. The Skria will have to find somewhere else to live. Please, talk to them. Tell them they're wrong. Help us. I can't. I'm sorry, Hanik. But they're right. I wish they weren't. I wish Bajor was Cantana. We're with Lars Hedegaard in the studio today. And Lars, I have one question to wrap up with you, at least from my point of view. As a historian, what's the lesson we can take from this cultural free speech, you know, law and order dilemma that we're facing today? And how, how, how could we apply this lesson to everyone's betterment? Or, as you say, is, is it too late? In some countries, it is too late. Uh, I would say, uh, f- for example, in Sweden, uh, it's too late. There is, uh, and I what does that mean when you say too late? Like, what is that? The, the, the very state will break up. Yeah. The, the welfare state will crumble. Um, people will have to organize to the best of their ability to defend their local uh, communities. But I think the, um, the fundamental thing that we can take away from this whole uh, discussion and also what is happening in Europe and will soon happen in Canada and the U.S., is that we tend to forget the very basis of our uh, states, our nation states, which is at least an implied social contract between the population mm-hmm. and the government. The population uh, refrains from taking the law into uh, its own hand, or its own hands. On the other hand, the government, the president, the king, uh, etc., promised to. Uh, keep law and order. That means that if your uh, wife is killed, you don't go out and kill the murderer. You expect the government to take revenge and punish on your part. Retaliatory force in an objective manner. Yes, of manner. course. That is the yeah. the the. the, the uh, I know it's uh, a bit different in the U.S. because of uh, of their uh, gun laws, etc. But we don't have well, the these principles guns. the same. Though. The principles are the same. Yes. Um, and what we're seeing now is that uh, the states are unable or unwilling to uphold law and order. They are withdrawing from one area of Denmark after another. Now, this part of the city, you can no longer walk the streets. Uh, the police dare not enter. Uh, the fire brigade has to, to need heavy protection to even uh, come in, ambulances, etc. So the state is retreating. And how does that, where does that leave the, the citizens? They can then either surrender and accept uh, Muslim mob rule uh, led by local imams and other uh, ideologues, or they can uh, try to defend themselves in their local communities. And I, th- I see more and more signs that this is uh, what's happening. We now see, I, I hate to call them vigilantes because that has a bad name, uh, but you see self-defense groups, for example, of uh, businessmen in the southern part of Jutland who patrol the streets 
because uh, you get all these people across the border. The first thing they do is they rob and they steal and and uh, uh, would very much like to rape, etc. So uh, you're f- if if you have no other option, this is the only option you have. So, what specifically, what measures specifically would you? invite your government to do to to stem this tide if it's not too late well i would say first of all uh, close the borders uh to to anyone we suspect of being uh, uh, unwilling to to integrate secondly anyone who who as much as peeps a word that that they want to introduce sharia law in the country ought to be uh, kicked out of the country we don't need these people what if they are already Danish citizens? Well, they could take away their citizenship uh, because the alternative would be horrible. Then you can say, okay, but, I mean, we have free speech. Yes, I'm all for free speech, but they can speak freely uh, in the countries they came from. They don't have to go to Denmark to speak about uh, Sharia law and the stoning of women and, and uh, um, brutality uh, to an extent that we can only imagine. They don't have to be in Denmark to do that. They can do that from abroad. So close the borders, um, expel the imams and those who are speaking against um, or, or, or advocating criminal yes. activities. Yes. Um, anything else? Well, of course, you can. Uh, you could uh, f- uh, limit the rights to f- uh, t- uh, of family uh, unification. I mean, if you come to Denmark and you have four wives in Syria or. or um, you could say we don't want your four wives and 19 children. Um, we can't afford it. So you could do that. Um, but I think the main thing is to stop the imams who preach this uh, hatred and who threaten uh, our population. Uh, as I said, uh, there was a book that came out uh, a few years ago written by an ex-imam called Ahmed Akari. He was actually one of the ringleaders when you had the, the uh, cartoon affair. He was a leader of, of a, a gang of imams and others who went to the Middle East to stir up trouble against Denmark. He then uh, recounted and uh, wrote a book where he uh, bluntly uh, said, there is not one single moderate mosque in Denmark. Not one. So I think we ought to stop allowing new mosques and we ought to monitor those that are in existence. And uh, if these, imam carry, carry, these imams carry on, they should be kicked out of the country. Well, it looks like we're in for some very perilous and interesting times over in Europe, and then by extension mm-hmm. to Canada and the United States. Lars Hedegaard, uh, Bob and I appreciate you joining today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And the rest of you, be sure to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. That's what I like when I see us getting along. That's what moved me about 9-11. 9-11 was beautiful because the only beautiful part was we all became Americans. That was cool. 9-11, we were all Americans. But then Katrina hit, we were back to and crackers. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like what happened to I am an American man remember September 15th it was beautiful they put commercials on TV where they showed a black person and he'd be like I am an American then they would show a white person they'd be like I am an American 
Then the immigrant would come out and be like, I got a lot of guy. And we'd look at him like, nah. You better show me a birth certificate. 